Welcome or welcome back to the Lunchtime Foolery Podcast. It's your boy Raheem Doan back on the mic. It's been a while, but today I have a special guest joining me right now. It's my uncle. Say what's up. What's up? So today I'm just going to hit him with a quick interview, just get a rundown of his life, you know, uh, his his uh, interests and just where he thinks, where is he going to take it uh, after this. So uh, for starters, how was life growing up in the Magnolia Projects of New Orleans, Louisiana? <laughs> well, you're going way back, huh? Um, that was an interesting time, a scary time, but you know, the, um, um, it was, um, I mean, we were in the projects of New Orleans, so all the bad things that's associated with living in the projects were going on there. Um, I was luckily kind of missed the, uh, crack epidemic, so things certainly could have been worse than (laughs) what, what they were, um, but my parents, you know, my parents, they really sheltered us from the bad things. We were there at a young age, and we, we didn't realize how, how bad things could have been. You know, we were, we were a tight family, and, um, and we, we were just, you know, we were able to push through that without getting caught up in the, in the drama and the uh, nonsense that goes on in the projects. Yeah, I feel that, because, like, during the emotional time, like not an emotional time, but like my mother expressing uh, how she felt about it. She told me uh, specifically, like they moved out of New Orleans, so me and my brother, you know, didn't get mixed up in all the drama that's going on there. And I'm grateful for that. We we, we lived in Lilburn, Georgia, for nine years, and then we moved out to uh, Dubai. So I mean, life has been, I guess, simpler for me than than it was for y'all at the time. But uh, what challenges did you face while growing up uh, in that area? Um, it was, I mean, we were broke, we were poor, (laughs) so, so that was always a challenge. Um, it was, it was a two bedroom, um, project, a two bedroom apartment. My parents had, um, had one bedroom and then the five of us shared another one with one bath. So, you know, all of us piled into a room. I I had to share a bed with my brother. Um, the two, the, um. The, uh, my brother and I shared a bed, the one right under me, Yasin. Then um, my sister shared a bed, your mother and, and, um, and your Auntie Asia. Ibrahim had his own bed. Then um, Uncle Najib was born there, but he, um, he, didn't, he stayed in the crib in, um, in my parents' room. But the one thing we talk about uh, challenges, it was more of a sacrifice that I didn't know was happening, was that you know, we moved into the projects in order to save money. My, my, my dad had, had foresight to move us there so we weren't spending money on rent and that way we could save money to buy our own house. So it was like the projects were a step to a better life for us. And our parents always instilled that in us, that a lot of people that lived there, we, you know, we called them lifers. This is where they saw themselves, whereas we will always saw ourselves as, as somebody passing through so that we can have a better life afterwards. All right, I feel that as well. I mean... I, w- I will never have the experience of living in the projects, but the way that y'all describe it sometimes, the stories that you tell us is like, like today, for example, is it seemed like a fun area sometimes, but then, but then I get humbled by the fact that like, you know, the crime aspect and, you know, the danger that, w- that did take place there. It was, it's, it's an eye opener for me to, to know like how good my life is and, but yeah, I, j- I just appreciate that I have family members that came from all the, all types of different places, and I get perspective from that. But um, 
you attended an HBCU, something that I um, am striving to do as well. But uh, we, we're in disagreement of where you think I should go <laughs> currently. Uh, my, my first choice is Howard University, HU, we all know. And you're on the Xavier train right now. But I want to get your opinion. What made you decide to attend Xavier University? All right. So first off, thank you. Class of 95. Um, what made me attend Xavier was the, uh, the first thing is I was legacy. My dad went to Xavier. And, um, and so that's, that's what made me look at it. And then um, I had a lot of friends. I mean, we used to call Xavier the 13th grade at McBain. It was a, it was a high achieving high school. So a lot, of, a lot of my class ended up going to four-year colleges. And Xavier was one of the ones that we, we went to. Um, so I had so I, so for that reason I applied. Um, th I I didn't. It was weird how naive I was at that age. I didn't realize that Xavier was the number one school in putting African Americans into medical and dental school. But it was. It ended up being the right place for me. Um, you know, they 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 overlooked any blemishes I had in my in my grades. You know, I was a pretty good student, B, B student, but they saw the potential in me and they let me in. And I blossomed because it was the right. It was just the right environment, you know, a, bigger than my high school, but not a big college. Um, so, so I didn't get lost in the shuffle. And I was the type of student that just needed a little extra attention. Um, and when they gave it to me, it was enough for me to to um, to really grow and um, and do well. So, so yeah. So Xavier, that it it was just fortunate for me that I that I applied. And the price was good too, man. Xavier's still pretty affordable compared to these other HBCUs out what there. Um, uh, you can't quote me on it because I haven't looked it up. I don't know if we it's can like 30, pause the tape and I can look it up. No, I don't. It's, I don't think it's anywhere near that. It's, it should be under twenty thousand a year. Xavier, Xavier's pretty. And your grandmother's there too, man. You can get some home cooking. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it's definitely still number one in placing African Americans into medical school. Um, it's not there for dental school, but if you want to go to dental school, the, the, the prerequisites are pretty much the same. So, so you, can, you can go there and get what you need. But certainly it was the right school for me, and, and it's only been growing since I, was, since I went there. You know, um, so yeah. I understand that legacy part that you uh, dabbled upon because my dad brought that up to me. Like, that's because that's why Xavier is one of my options because of the whole you went there, my mom went there. And my grandfather was also with. Didn't Auntie Lorraine go there as well? Uh, no, no. I think she spent some time. Oh, can't hear. Uh, it's fine. But um, yeah. So all the all that uh, is like I become, you know, the the next part to extend that legacy. But then I thought I thought to myself like, I don't know. I want to create my own thing. I'm not the only grandchild, you know, on this side of the family. True, true. So we they all uh can do this but would you recommend the path of an hbcu to a rising black student in this like i would i would i don't um i spent a lot of time around uh young black dental students and um i i so i still see a lot of successful ones coming out of hbcus um they still prepare as well and there's still a place for them, man. There's still a place for that, especially in America. Um, I know this, this, this podcast is, is worldwide, so I don't know if everyone 
in um you know in China and uh and other places that listen to this podcast uh, um you know South Korea uh Turkey I don't know if they know that racism is still alive and well in America so you know having a place where you're accepted where your home where your um your color the 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 type of hair you have your what you find funny what you find entertaining um your sensibility your history is um is something that is treasured and that is shared it still makes a difference in this country and people people who run the school who have a particular interest in making sure that you as an african american as a black man is successful who will you know who will just take that time who will take who make those efforts to make sure that you're successful um, you may get that at a majority college, but you may not, you know, so, so there's, there's still that, there's still the, um, the need, um, there. So I, 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 like I said, strive to go to a HBCU, uh, Howard, like aforementioned, but, um, but also my, what I see myself doing in the future is, is the same profession that you're in. Uh, you've inspired me to do that uh, and, you know, go into this potential job field or career path. And uh, so I just want to ask you, what made you, you know, think to become a dentist? What inspired you to become uh, what you are now? So what I am now is an interesting question because it's always evolving. And that's actually a good thing about uh, the field that I chose to go into, dentistry. Um, you know, my, my original thought is that I wanted to be a doctor. I didn't know what kind, uh, maybe, uh, um, you know, some, some sort of doctor, but I, I went to a couple of, um, summer programs because that's one of the things that HBCUs do. Xavier told me that after my sophomore year, I need to apply to a summer program and it looks good on my dental school application. I wouldn't have known that except that the pre-medical department puts out bulletins and inform me of that. So, and they also tell you the process to go through. How, they gave me a list of schools to apply to for summer programs. So I applied, um, got accepted into a Fisk University summer program. So I went there, met a young lady, never forget her, Ife Tayo Moore, Ife. And um, she said she was going to dental school. And um, <coughs> and I can I I should uh, look into it, so I did. Through the next summer, I applied to Creighton's pre dental program, and I enjoyed it. I loved it. I got to help have some of the student. I helped some of the students extract teeth. I got to drill on teeth um, for the well fake teeth for the first time, and there was also a a um a like a um practice or a, um enrichment program portion of it that helped increase my dental school acceptance test scores so after that program my dental school my dat score went up um, my interest in dental school went up and i went ahead and applied <clears throat> so that's kind of what got me interested um then when i got into dental school i i fit it just it just worked, you know. It wasn't it wasn't hard for me, and once again, it's because I had this 
foundation laid by Xavier that I was, I, I went to school with people who went to Stanford, Harvard, Cal Berkeley, and I went to Xavier, and I was just as competitive as they were. You, I see you trying to plug Xavier in there a lot, but um, you're not changing my mind with that. I'm trying to go to Howard, mm-hmm. but <laughs> um, that's that's a, that's a cool story with the whole, um, like your path going into dentistry. It's like you weren't really too sure, and it's like you found yourself later on. That's what I feel like. That's what college is about. And some people either go through that or don't. I feel like people stress too much right now within high school, and they feel like they need to know it. But what challenges did you face initially starting out in dental school and then transitioning into your profession or career of being a dentist? What challenges did I face? The biggest challenge I faced was getting a job. <laughs> I needed a job. I came out at, an int- at a very interesting time, a transition in dentistry. So um, there was a lot of um, private practice single doctor only practices, um, organized dentistry, not, not organized dentistry, corporate dentistry wasn't as big as it is now. And it was just tough getting a job. So I had to do a lot of work as a, um, as a hygienist. I did a lot of hygiene at first um, until I was able to find a situation where someone would hire me to do dentistry. And that took almost, almost a year to get a permanent position doing dentistry. Um, it's changed a lot right now. Now, over the last 20 years, over the last 20 years, the, um, the, the landscape of, of the dental field has completely transformed with the, um, with the entry of corporate dentistry. So the challenges that you'll face will not be so much as getting a job. Number one, it'll be the debt. Um, you know, dental, dental students are coming out with almost half a million dollars in dental school loans. Um, so you got that to contend with. Um, and then you also have um, being able to do the type of dentistry you want to do. Because um, corporate dentistry doesn't always give you the autonomy that you might want. Now, I know you got a plan with the military, so you may not have that, that debt burden. Um, but then still being able to get into a situation that you can actually practice the type of dentistry that... Um, that you want to do and not just what you have to do in order to make money. All right, so what I got was that from that was your initial problem was going into like getting a job and you started off in a field that you didn't want. But what is the difference between dentistry and being a hygienist? Like, All right, well, that question is kind of a technical question, but um, – you know, being a, you know, a dentist is a doctor. And um, that's, that's top of the food chain right there. <laughs> that's it. A uh, hygienist is someone who works for the doctor, and their, their, um, their job duty is to maintain your oral health by cleaning your teeth and teaching you how to brush your teeth properly. The dentist is the one who diagnoses the disease. You know, it's, there is, nothing happens in your mouth unless the dentist says it happened. Um, so they di- dentists diagnose and treat oral disease. So we're the one who act- we're the ones who actually do the um, the dental surgery. I don't know if a lot of people know this, but DDS stands for Doctor of Dental Surgery. You're a surgeon. You know, you when you're doing preparations or, or, or drilling on teeth, you actually do a surgery on a tooth. 
So, so yes, yeah, so you're the one. You're the ones who can actually do the work inside the mouth of fixing a cavity, um, extracting a tooth, doing a root canal, do it, placing an implant, placing a crown, um, placing dentures. All right. So if you had to do your, you know, schooling and your whole entire path all over again, what difference would you make uh, in regards to like your journey? Um, dentistry is ever evolving and there's so many ways that you can, you know, you can practice. And I, um, if I could do things over again, I, you know, I would have learned my paths more. I would have learned what all my options were earlier. Um, my need to be self-sufficient, to pay bills, to, um, you know, to get money and get and get and get um, the comforts in life just kind of led me down one path. But if I could have postponed that a little bit longer and really found out what I wanted to do um, and what there was, what ways I could do it, <clears throat> I would have maybe done things a little bit differently. Um, I probably would have started my office bigger. Um, you start off with a small office because you're nervous about how much the overhead is and whether or not you can cover it. And some people did advise me, go big, go big. But I couldn't imagine, I couldn't imagine being able to handle that. So one thing I would have done differently is I would have, um, I would have seen my success. And uh, until you do something, you don't know how successful you can be at it. But now that I've done it, you know, I would have started I would have started from the beginning knowing how much how much more successful I could have been. So I would have I would have started a bigger office with more chairs, and and hired associates earlier, brought in a manager earlier, um, and then and then had more options in the way I wanted to practice dentistry. You know, then I would have started implants earlier, um, and then been able to give back more. So that's one thing that having me as a mentor you have an advantage. You know, I didn't have a direct, a direct um, dental mentor, someone who took the path, who had already taken the path that I wanted to take and tell me, and tell me um, what to do. Like I said, some of my, um, you know, supply company reps would tell me, hey, doc, you need a bigger office because, you know, you're going to really grow. But I just took that as saying, well, they just, their job is to sell me stuff. So, of course, they want me to buy more stuff. But when I look back on it, I'm like, wow, yeah, they had a point, you know, building, finding a space where I could only fit six chairs into um, has limited me where now if I had 10 chairs, I'd be even further on. So knowing, you know, having a sense of what success can be um, is something I wish I had known better when before I started. And, you know, you have that advantage of, in me that I can show you what success can be. I can show you how to be even more successful than I was. I'm gonna need a small cut for that, but <laughs> I can do that for you. Let me just say this, before, before the podcast a few days ago, he asked me for when I make my first million dollars, yeah, he wants a cut of that. <laughs> but, um, so when you started dental school and you moved out to California by yourself, uh, how was that experience, you know, like, how, 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 was it a culture shock moving from you know, the inner city of New Orleans to going to, you know, the capital of opportunity in the world, California? Mm -hmm. Oh, man, that's a great question. Um, I shocked a lot of people 
when I graduated, I got into UCSF. I had a couple of friends that were going to UCSF med school. And when they found out I got into UCSF dental, they said, well, why don't you just, why don't you come to UCSF with us? Because I was going to go to Penn. I was going to be Ivy League East Coast. But I figured if I go to UCSF, I'd have a couple of friends I can live with. And then I have my family here. You know, Auntie Alice and Tisha was out here. Um, so I, you know, and I said, I'm going, I'm going to Cali, baby, I'm going West Coast. And I just left. I mean, I think a week after graduation from, from, um, from XU, I was out. Um, I was working. I transferred my job. I got a new job at the same place at Circuit City. This is before Best Buy, so y'all may not even know what Circuit City is, but it was a place kind of like Best Buy. I was working there for the summer and just, just living in California, and I loved it. It was great. I mean, it was, you know, it's so different from New Orleans. You, you know, you think New Orleans is a big city until you go to a real big city. You know, it was, this place was huge. It was a subway. You know, people eat sushi, ride bikes. Um, they do now in New Orleans, but back then we didn't. <laughs> you, know? Um, you know, then I went to, um, I went to, you know, school started. I got to know my classmates, and now this is my first time being in a true multicultural environment. You know, I'm in school with, you know, um, Chinese, uh, Vietnamese, um, Koreans, um, Persian people, white people, um, you name it. That's, that's what I'm hanging out with now. Um, and I started, you know, eating um, different kinds of food, Ethiopian food I never had before. Um, um, Chinese food was just fried rice, you know, but now we started eating real Chinese food, Thai food, um, sushi, you name it. You know, we were, we were doing it. I start, started, I got, a, I got a bike. I'm riding all over San Francisco on a mountain bike. Um, and then I, um, we went skiing. I used to go up to Tahoe every week, every year for Black Ski Weekend. So it was just a complete culture shock. You know, I, I, I sometimes get on my bike and go to downtown San Francisco and just look up at the at the buildings, just how tall they were. It's like this is this is crazy, and I can't believe I'm here. And so that's you're gonna have an experience like that, and um, and uh, when you get to when you get to DC, when you, if you end up at Howard and not XU, but you know just <laughs> just something different. I mean, I don't know what more what more you can be exposed to, you know, world traveler and everything like that. But the difference is going to be being exposed to this, um, this culture and this life, but also having the freedom to experience it. You know, when you're young, you, you can be in a place, but you're restricted. You're limited by what your parents allow or what your, you know, spon your, um, whatever your, um, your sponsor or whoever's in charge allows you to do. Um, but now you have total freedom to do what you want and you experience life in a different way you become your own person you become your own man um and that's what happened to me out here and that's what happened to you when you um when you start college <laughs> um i don't i enjoy i guess i don't i don't have the same appreciation for california as you do because like california is like the the basis of who made you who made you but where you found your you know character right I guess like the East Coast is just where I'm, I'm more like driven to. So my question right now is, say that you did go to Penn, uh, how how differently differently do you think your life would be right now? You know that's that's not something I give I've given a lot of thought to. 
Um, it, it was weird when I was your age. Actually, I was you know I was all East Coast. Um, you know, New Orleans bounce rap whatever had come out, and then also gangster rap was really um, hitting. But I didn't care about any of that stuff. I was on that backpack, East Coast underground hip hop, native tongues, tribe called Quest. Um, you know, I love New York. I love I could name all the boroughs of New York. Um, you know, I love uh, Jersey, D.C. Actually, the first place I flew on the airplane to was to D.C. and and I, I love that experience. Um, that was that was still in, in in high school. I was a senior in high school when that happened. Um, so, so yeah, I would have had a good time in, in, on the East coast, but I don't know. It's, um, so I'm, I'm like, I'm a weird, um, amalgamation of West coast, California, Southern New Orleans, and with East coast sensibilities all kind of meshed into one person. <laughs> so it's kind of crazy. You know, when I graduated from dental school, some people, you know, they do, some of my classmates went on European tours. Um, I was like, I got no damn European tour. I got no money for that. <laughs> so, but I did take a week and a half and went to um, and went to the East Coast. That was the first place I wanted to go. I bought a plane ticket. I flew into New York and then started calling my friends. I didn't even tell them I was coming. I just showed up. I made no arrangements for where I was going to stay or how I was going to get around. I just... I was just, I'm in New York. I figured from New York, New York will provide. So, so that's what I did. I had a great time. I still see people that I was in contact with um, and that, that we hung out with on that trip, and they still remember it um, finally. Um, so, yeah, I would have been I would have been fine. I don't know, like, beyond dental school, how it would have worked as a dentist, um, you know, you know, some there, there's a lot of fortunate things that happened for me in California that I don't know how that would have happened in in um, the East Coast. You know, coming out of school and I, I came out right at the at the um, height of the dot com um, stock market um, expansion and then the housing boom. So I was able to buy a house at a, at an inflated at a super inflated price, but sold it. You know, like five years later in 2005 for an even higher price. And that money I got from selling that house allowed me to pay off my student loans, uh, pay off my car, pay off the loans that my parents had taken out for me for, for, um, for education, and um, start my practice. And it just got me into a great financial situation. And, you know, that was just me being in the right place at the right time. And I probably wouldn't have had that experience if I was on the East Coast. So for now, I can still you know, visit D.C. whenever I can, get to Chicago whenever I can, listen to the rap music, but, you know, California's home. So, like like you like you said, you know, you have this connection with the West Coast. I, I, I appreciate California for what it is, you know, with the culture, uh, like you said, and rap, and, you know, stuff that, that influences me on a daily basis. But the East Coast and the South is just where my heart is. Uh, for the most part, is where I want to go to school. Is where most of my family is, and um, but yeah, what what steps should you take for? Well, should I take that you would recommend for me to start my own practice in the future? Well, let's see. Um, the first thing is is getting out of dental school. First, you got to get into dental school. Dental school. The um, it, it's it it's 
you know, it's good to think about the future, but because you got these very specific roadblocks that that future won't happen unless this happens, you know, thinking beyond it is, is important and cool, but you got to get past this gateway first. You know, you've got to get into college. You got to, you know, you got to get through college and then you've got to get uh, into dental school. And then you got to get out of dental school. Um, and so once, you know, once you've gotten through those, those barriers, then, um, then, you, then you're building a practice. But, you, but it's a good question to ask because you're right. I, I looked at those barriers as the end, and I didn't plan on what's going to happen after that until I got to it. So thinking about what you want to happen after you get through it will put you ahead of where I was. So um, one thing is business classes. You know, um, your, your, um, your pre-dental program will keep you busy in college. But when it comes to electives, anything you can learn about how to run a business, how to market a business, how to hire employees, you know, um, those things are important. Um, communications classes. One of the things that people don't think about with dentistry is yeah, we think about the surgery, we think about the, um, you know, the, the placing implants and doing fillings and stuff. But what makes you successful, what really makes you successful is for people to like you. If your patients like you, if your staff likes you, then you can do no wrong. You know, the, the, the mo you could be the mediocre dentist. You can do the worst crowns. You can do the worst fillings. And patients will not care because they don't know. As long as you don't hurt them and they like you, then they're going to keep coming back. <laughs> Nobody, no patient can look at your crown and see if the margin was perfect. They don't, they don't know. They don't care. As long as it doesn't hurt and it works for them, but they like you as a person and, they, and you, you show empathy, you show that you care about their well-being, um, then they'll keep coming back and they'll bring their family and they'll bring their friends. So, you know, developing that, realizing that dentistry is an interpersonal um, profession, that you're, you know, you're a part surgeon, but you're also part psychologist. You know, people are going to, they're going to want to unload on you. They're going to want to tell you why their teeth are messed up. You know, every time you see a person with a messed up grill whose, you know, mouth is bombed out, there's a story behind that. It doesn't just happen in a vacuum. You know, you have, they're going to want to, you, you, you may have to get it out of them before they feel comfortable enough for you to treat them. Or sometimes they just want you to know, you know, what they went through. You know, was it drugs? Was it divorce? Was it, um, is it medicines and surgeries? Is it just um, apathy and neglect, depression? It's a lot of reasons why people let their mouths go. Um, and you got to deal with the physical rehabilitation, but also sometimes you got to deal with the mental rehabilitation. You got to teach people how to smile again. I guess I'm going to have to teach people how to smile again. But uh, this trip has been very informational for me, learning about dentistry and uh, different schools and how I should be able to, you know, read and direct my education to better myself. But another thing I have been learning about every day is Tesla. We're going to talk about that right now. <laughs> so what do you think? All right. You, you have this thing with, you know, you ha he has a vendetta against gas, gas cars right now. So what makes what makes a gas car that much inferior to a Tesla? 
What makes a gas car that much inferior to a Tesla? Everything. <laughs> they stink. They shake when you drive them. You got to turn them on. I, it's it's just inferior. It's it's technology that was created a hundred years ago, and that's and we haven't improved on it yet. Um, there's one thing about gas cars that I think when people when people really wrap really truly wrap their heads around it, they'll want to change. And that's that every gas car comes with a tailpipe. And the tailpipe has one job, to pollute, to literally take trash that your engine creates and to spew it out into the atmosphere. That's what a tailpipe is for. So, you know, once I realized that that's what my car was doing and I had the opportunity to drive a car that doesn't do that, that's what I want to do. That's what, it, that's what I think everybody should want to do. Um, it, it's it's just, it the feel of it is smoother, the acceleration is smoother and stronger. Um, there's no maintenance, there's nothing that can break, you know. Not, I don't mean that literally, but very little moving parts. So you put you put electrons in it, which for right now, as we're speaking, my solar panel, my solar panels on the roof are ch is charging my car. I don't know if you got a gas tank on your roof that can, that can fill your car up. <laughs> So, you know, my car rides on sunlight. And, um, you know, that's speaking, that's for all, all electric cars in general. Tesla in, Tesla in particular um, has technology that other cars doesn't have with the autopilot, with the, um, with the um, supercharger network, which when you first got here, we drove 1,400 miles. We took a 1,400-mile trip from, you know, from my home all the way down to Southern California, through Joshua Tree National Park and back up, um, all without a drop of gas, you know, just using the superchargers. So yeah, the future of future of, of uh, personal transportation will be electrics. There's still a lot of infrastructure that needs to that needs to happen, and um, and the pricing needs to come down for for everyday people. But once we get there, then everybody will will see the see that the superiority of um, of electrics over over uh, combustion engines. <laughs> um see with the whole future thing that you just mentioned with it'll be electric cars how soon do you think that the cars will be filled with um not the cars the roads will be filled with self-driving cars uh and it should just rule out the the um, the component of humans driving like when do you think that's gonna happen the most honest answer is i don't know so you know i love tesla as a company i love um you know what Elon Musk is doing and you know everything he said you got to take with a grain of salt because you know he, he's never on time but according to you know what he's released um, about the plans for his company the, um, the self-driving cars should be a reality within the next two years um, the way they're building their neural network or their um, you know that their, their network is it will allow the cars to train themselves and they'll be able to take do level level five autonomous driving um, within two years. When that happens, then everything switches, everything changes. Driving any other car would make no sense. You know, I would just get in the back seat and and be on my phone while my car is driving. But what it does is it actually it'll make having a car almost obsolete. I mean, you won't you won't even need a car anymore. 
because now you have a network that you can just pull up a car on your phone and the car shows up. So it's, you know, the whole way that people look at car ownership and transportation will completely change. Because, well, you may say, well, I can do that now with Uber. But with Uber, you still have to pay a driver, which keeps the cost high. Once you no longer have to pay someone to drive the car, the cost of transportation just goes through the floor. And so the cost of owning a car, cost of owning a car, your own car, will be so much higher than just getting a car when you need one. So, you know, some people, some families may drop from uh, three cars to two cars, from two cars to one car. Some people may go from one car to no car, depending on your situation. Um, you know, you know, for me, we, we can become a one car family. So I can just get an auto car for the for my trips to and from work. Then on the weekend, we'll have one car that the family shares for, for weekend trips or whatever we're going to do. So, so, yeah, I think we're going to see within five years huge changes in the way transportation works throughout the country and throughout the world. Um, you know, it's the, only, the, the, the only thing that can slow it down is just the ability to manufacture. I mean, Tesla literally, at this point, Tesla can't make their cars fast enough. You know, the demand is that high for electrics. All right. Well, I'm glad I got to pick your brain for uh, a solid amount of time. But uh, thank you for, to my uncle for allowing me to give you this interview. But uh, that was the Lunchtime for Larry Podcast, y'all. It was your boy Raheem back on the mic today. Uh, you can catch me on social media on Instagram at Raheem underscore Dunwa. Dunwa is spelled D-A-U-N-O-Y. And you can find me on Snapchat Raheem underscore Dunwa 20. And you can also catch me on LinkedIn at Raheem space Dunwa. That was the Lunchtime for Larry Podcast, y'all. Peace. My apologies, listeners, for the prolonged absence. I've been enjoying my vacation in sunny California, and I'm gonna. I'm hoping to pump out more content for you as soon as I get back home. But uh, today, I just want to hit you with a nice segment, nice interview with my uncle. And uh, my apologies for any background noise during the interview. I'm, I'm in a household full of uh, kids, and a lot of people are sick ears. So if there's coughing or anything in the background, my apologies. But uh, hopefully, I can get more content out in uh, queue. Like, subscribe uh, to any platform you're listening on. And, uh, yep, see y'all later.